Let us pray. Holy Spirit, breathe afresh upon us. Open us that we might truly hear this your word as a living word, your very voice unto us, shaping us, leading us, even transforming us this very day. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Our Old Testament reading comes from Psalm 104, verses 24 to 30. O Lord, how manifold are your works! In wisdom you have made them all. The earth is full of your creatures. Yonder is the sea, great and wide. Creeping things innumerable are there, living things both small and great. There go the ships and the leviathan that you form to sport in it. These all look to you to give them their food in due season. When you give to them, they gather it up. When you open your hand, they are filled with good things. When you hide your face, they are dismayed. When you take away their breath, they die and return to their dust. When you send forth your spirit, they are created and you renew the face of the ground. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Our New Testament reading comes from Acts chapter 2, verses 1 through 13, as we are in the second Sunday of a a series in the book of Acts. And and last week we we saw how Jesus promises the disciples that they will be empowered with the Holy Spirit to be witnesses in Jerusalem and Judea and Samaria and and to the ends of the earth. They're going to be headed out. They're going to be empowered. And today we read about that empowerment When the day of Pentecost had come, they, the disciples, were all together in one place. And suddenly from heaven there came a sound like the rush of a violent wind. And it filled the entire house where they were sitting. Divided tongues as of fire appeared among them, and a tongue rested on each of them. All of them were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages as the Spirit gave them ability. Now there were devout Jews from every nation under heaven living in Jerusalem. And at the sound the crowd gathered and was bewildered. Because each one heard them speaking in the native language of each. Amazed and astonished they asked, Are not all of these who are speaking Galileans? And how is it that we hear each of us in our own native language? Parthians, Medes, Elamites, the residents of Mesopotamia... Judea and Cappadocia, Pontus and Asia, Phygia, Pamphylia, Egypt, parts of Libya belonging to Cyrene, visitors from Rome, both Jews and proselytes, Cretans and Arabs. In our own languages, we hear them speaking about God's deeds of power. All were amazed and perplexed, saying to one another, what does this mean? But others sneered and said, they are filled with new wine. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. I spent the early part of this past week preparing. Before Hurricane Florence's trajectory shifted, many in Richmond were recalling Hurricane Isabel and what that did to Richmond and and were advising preparation. 
So Monday night after committee meetings finished up here, I set aside a couple other important tasks I had and, and I make the trip to Kroger. And after circling the lot twice to find a parking spot, I walk into Kroger and there are no longer grocery carts or the baskets. So, so I, empty, I come in empty-handed having forgot also my own basket. And I figure, well, that's going to keep the grocery list short. Of course, I prioritize water. The water aisle is 100% empty. There are two guys rolling crates out of the back of Kroger and not even bothering to get to the water aisle, just placing crates at the back. And, and people are pulling gallon after gallon, putting it in their cart, crate after crate, throwing it to the side. I get two gallons, one for each hand. Priority two, bread. That can fit under my arm. The bread aisle is also fairly decimated. I'm able to come away with a loaf, thing of peanut butter, a couple nutrition bars, and now I turn toward the registers. And there, wound up and down the aisles of Kroger, stand half of Richmond, waiting. We know how to prepare for a storm. May not be able to avoid it, may not go perfectly if it comes in full strength, but, but we know how to get out in front of it and, 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 and get ready. But do we know how to prepare to be part of a storm? That is at least one of the more central questions invited by Acts chapter 2. Acts chapter 2 begins with the chirps swept up into a storm. Very, very purposely, very essentially, the church is swept into a storm. A sound like a rush of violent wind, followed by divided tongues as of fire, appearing and resting on the heads of the people gathered. We read in verse 6 that all are, quote, bewildered. A word that is meant to convey a less than pleasant emotion. There's a sense of fear of, of what is going on here. This is out of control. And it is. The spirit, not the church, is definitely running the entirety of this moment. But destructive, no. Not, not this particular storm. This particular storm in which the church finds itself is not actually tearing anything down. It's quite oppositely, this storm is, is, is building something. It's strengthening something. This storm is bringing about a sort of unity that, it, that is, is truly miraculous as we continue reading what unfolds. In fact, the, the profundity of the miracle that happens in Acts 2, it came home to me all the more again a, a little over a week ago. I was at this short retreat uh, conference as part of a group called Leadership Metro Richmond. And each year this, 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 this group will bring together around 70 leaders in the for-profit, non-profit sector to learn about Metro Richmond and, and ways we might collaborate and, and, and serve for the betterment of the area. And the group, they're brought together for a 10-month period and it kicks off with this, this opening retreat. And in one sense, everybody is on the same page insofar as everyone lives and works in metro Richmond and and, and they're all gathered to serve and then it's also quite diverse racially age vocation 
healthcare professionals, finance professionals, educators, lawyers, community activists, a couple police chiefs, county uh, and city planners, small business owners. So I'm looking around the room, this, this, this diversity, these various expertise, these, these people that, 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 that arrived wanting to serve and thinking, wow, I wonder what might unfold. Well, midway through this retreat, folks are, are already developing meaningful friendships, relationships, connections. And the rele- retreat leaders want to have us do an exercise where we practice communication, dialogue specifically. Truly learning to hear one another, where one another's coming from, ask questions. I mean, if we're going to collaborate on important pressing issues that matter to us in the area, goodness, we've we got to be able to communicate. So the exercise begins this way. Those of you in favor of the death penalty go to that part of the room. And those of you opposed to the death penalty go to that part of the room. Now dialogue about why you are where you are. It took us no more than maybe three or four minutes to bring the temperature of that room to boiling. Without planning to, intending to, meaning to, we were definitely talking with raised voices at one another, over one another. And as the volume picked up, some of the quieter types just start whispering to one another, kind of in a gossip like, mm, them, that, I, mm. I mean, we point fingers at, at politicians who seem so, so adept at talking at and over and gossiping behind. But the truth is, you can get 70 people who think service is one of the high ideals of their life together in a room. And if you put something on the table that actually matters, a decision that actually matters, something that is meaningful to individuals and they have a vested concern or hope, we default to talking at and over and behind. And if we're honest, we've known this, this dynamic to occur in churches where we name our center as the one who came not to be served, but to serve. We've known this dynamic in our families. We do it in our marriages. If, if, if there are certain topics, certain decisions placed on the table, immigration, money, Race, inheritance, scriptural interpretation, gun violence, certain traditions, certain policies. Not all of those hit us the same way. But boy, if, if, you, if you get into something that matters, we have a default position where we talk at or over. Or perhaps we're more the meek and mild, but we know how to talk around and behind. It can be sobering to admit when we start to look at some of the dynamics in individual or, or, or larger relationships, but, but it's not surprising. People who hold scripture in high regard, we know how fraught our communication can be with sin. Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouth. Paul begs the church because he knows how easy it is, how destructive it is. Do not spread false reports or gossip the Torah, and then that's just repeated over and over. Keep your tongue from evil and your lips from telling lies. The Proverbs cry time and again in in different forms. The tongue, it's a small part of the body, but it makes great boasts. Consider what a forest is set on fire by a small spark. The tongue also is a fire, a world of evil among the parts of the body. It's no 
accident that I felt the heat of that room rise as our group talked at and over and behind. It's really a profound thing when people hear one another. And that really goes to the profundity of the miracle that the Holy Spirit's storm is stirring in Acts 2. All those who are gathered in Jerusalem are are Jewish, or they're they're proselytites, they're converts to Judaism. Aside from that, they have a lot of differences. That long litany of names I read in verses 9 through 11, uh, of all the people groups that are present in Jerusalem, those list the names of of every region known in the world at that time, every, every cultural language and people group. And these are the Jewish people from all those disparate areas. And among all of these differences and potential for any measure of miscommunication or worse, something else happens. Verse 4 says these people began to speak other languages. Verse 11 says everyone could hear people of other languages speaking, but they still understand the speech in their own language. So it's as if one verse, verse 4 says, all the English speakers began speaking French, and the French could understand. But then another verse implies the English speakers just kept speaking English, but the French were able to hear the English as if they were speaking French. It's a bit confusing. So, so was the Holy Spirit giving the church new language or new ears? Both are there. And perhaps rightly so, because the point is that the surprisingly different and diverse people were actually communicating. There was a speaking and a hearing. I get what you're saying. I hear you in my own language. I understand In particular, we read that what they are sharing with one another is, quote, about God's deeds of power. The speech is not captive to an agenda, a bias, a desire to convince or hurt or gossip or self-promote. Their speech is captive to naming what God is doing. There's a fundamental humility to this kind of speech because it shows their foremost attention really is upon God and where God is moving and leading and what God has been doing. It reminds me of the very first sentence of Rick Warren's very famous book, The Purpose Driven Life. It's not about you, period. The people of Acts 2 have speech flavored with a humility that is pointing to Jesus. I mean, can you imagine? Can you imagine if if Christians who, who kneel at the anthem and Christians who stand, Christians young and Christians old, Christians who believe the monuments must come down and the monuments, Christians who believe the monuments must remain, can you imagine Christians even within your own family who haven't talked for years over this or that? Or, or can you imagine with even in your own marriage around the topics that always break things down? Could you imagine if Christians from every denomination and region of this country, let alone world, 
Amid all those profoundly theological and cultural differences. I mean, can you imagine come together, and not in some kind of kumbaya moment where we pick a hymn or two we can all agree on, sing it, take the picture, and go back to our camps. No, can you imagine sort of an entirely new way of speaking and hearing where you try to get deeper? Imagine if both sides spoke, not... Not perfectly, but, 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 but spoke something that really was of God. And the other side could hear it, perhaps not perfectly, but could hear something of what is of God in, in, in that spouse, that person, that perspective. That I mean, if, if, if both, both sides could remark, I, I, hear you, I hear you in my own language. I get what you're saying. I actually hear something of God in that. I mean, it's no wonder that others gathered that morning assume that the church is drunk with wine. It's just so inexplicably uninhibited, this manner of speaking and hearing, this, this measure of trust and vulnerability. Can you imagine... To be sure, we cannot control where and how the Spirit stirs a fresh storm of fresh speaking and listening and opening the church unto a a new humility. That's a gift. Doesn't mean we aren't told how to prepare to be part of the storm. Because before the storm ever gets going, all of Jesus' followers are following his command that he gave at the beginning of the book of Acts. They're to gather in one place and wait for the Holy Spirit. And as they wait, we read in Acts chapter 1, verse 14, they all join together constantly in prayer. Far before the dizzying displays of wind and fire and speaking and hearing from people from all over the world, the Holy Spirit's storm begins in waiting and prayer. As Karl Barth famously observed, the most active workers and thinkers and fighters in the divine service in this world have at the same time and manifestly been the most active in prayer. Before the great visible storm, there is an interior storm. Now we may wonder, what did the disciples pray in Acts 1.14? They're constantly in prayer. But I wonder if it's too much of a stretch to assume that in their prayers they often practice the one that Jesus had just taught them when they asked, so how do you pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. A prayer that immediately moves us out of the center and puts God in the center. It's not about you. Period. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. A prayer that then immediately has us set aside whatever agenda, petition, certain belief, action thing we want to raise up and opens one to a full humility before the living God and whatever God wants to raise up. Give us this day our daily bread. A prayer that recognizes everything we have down to the most elemental bread is a gift. It is a petition of humility. It is a petition that implies we recognize our need for absolutely 
all that we have. Forgive us our debts as we forgive our debtors. A petition that cries out for healing amid inevitably broken relationships we all have. A petition that recognizes with humility, I've got stuff. And with humility recognizes I've got to abdicate my right to be right. Help. Lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. A prayer that that asks the Lord to set a barrier that keeps us from going to that speech that is at and over and, and, and behind and so often sets destructive fires ablaze. Oh, guard us from the temptation to put us... Put ourselves back at the center. If there is one overarching theme to the Lord's Prayer, it is humility. Every line of the prayer draws us further into a cross-shaped posture. Every single line invites the heart to be humbled. In fact, the very act of any prayer truly is an abdication of our will, a posturing of listening and openness, an act of humility. It's no wonder that such stunning humility and praise are visibly communicated. I mean, such a diverse people in Acts 2. Because the Holy Spirit's storm has already been at work tearing down pillars of pride and walls of defense and, and foundations of self. Before the church is swept up into the visible storm, there is an interior storm that begins by way of prayer. We know how to prepare for a storm. Do we know how to prepare to be part of a storm? And the truth is, I think we do because the two are not so different. We set aside all the things we thought were pretty important. And we walk empty-handed into the presence of the living God. And then we prioritize water and bread. And we wait upon the faithful Lord. This is the day-by-day act of faith beyond which we never outgrow. And so the question is, I think not, do we know how to prepare to be part of a storm? We do. The question is, are we willing? Do we dare open our hearts to a fresh wind when so much has been carefully configured? Do we dare risk bewilderment, the loss of control, the cessation of control, To the wind. Oppositely though. Do we dare miss out on the miracle. The Holy Spirit is brewing in our midst. Do we dare miss out on the new speaking. And listening and healing. God is doing in some of our relationships. Do we dare miss out on what God is raising. Among us. From the new space of humility. Being birthed within us. Is not the way of the cross. Always the way of resurrection. Many of us spent last week preparing for a storm. What if we did the same this week? Amen.